Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity to praise your name, to sing your sing to your glory, to declare your excellencies. And I thank you for this time to uh, come and look into your word. And I pray that you'd prepare our hearts, that we would be receptive, that uh, you would break the hard heart, you would pierce the heart of stone, and that uh, you would take soft hearts and make them even softer, that we would uh, be able to, by your strength and power, through your word, know you better. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? There was a time when I wasn't, but now I am, and I praise the Lord for that. Some of you may not be, but for those of you who are, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality is that God saved us from serving ourselves, which, in that, in the, which ended up in sin and death, to serving a gracious, loving, merciful Savior who died for our sins. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the Apostle Paul recounts their their conversion. And he says this, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. When they got saved, they stopped serving themselves and they served the living and true God. Now, if you're a true believer, everything we do is service unto the Lord. There's this false uh, impression in the churches these days that only pastors and missionaries serve the Lord. Well, we all serve the Lord. We all serve the Lord in what God has called us to do, whether it's uh, obeying him at home or in fam- or at work or whatever it might be, and also in the context of serving one another here in the church. Now, when we serve the Lord, we recognize that God has declared in his word things that we should be doing in relationship to those things. The church, relationships to our families, relationships to work. We have God's word that informs us and helps us understand his will for those areas. Now, if you're a believer and you step out in his will, attempting to do his ways in those areas, whether it's raising your kids, whatever it might be, there are times where we can recognize that somehow something has happened here, that we have failed in one area or another. You know, we do fail. We do do, uh, miss the mark. But what about when we fail and we're actually trusting the Lord and we're actually seeming to do the right thing, seeming to, to rely on him? How do we deal with those failures or seemingly failures when, when God doesn't answer prayers which you would think are according to his will that he would answer? What do we do? Well, we're going to see today how we can keep from failing in what God calls us to do. Now, we're continuing our break. We've finished Second Peter. We're praying about the next book to go through, so felt prompted that this would be a good reminder for me. And I'm always thinking, first of all, Lord, what do I need to be reminded of? What do I need to grow in? And then what can we all grow in together? And so we're going to see today Jesus's gracious interactions with his faltering disciples. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 17? And we are going to be looking at verses 14 to 21 today. Now, I want to give one caveat to what I'm going to share today. Certainly, we're going to be talking about what happens when we when we fail, when we're actually trying to do God's will in a right manner. Uh, We're not talking about when we fail because we sin. You see, we all fail because we sin, and we need to confess those sins and move forward. And sometimes there are consequences to that. Today, we'll be talking about what happens when we're actually doing the right thing, and yet we fail. What happened? What happened? How can we keep from failing when doing 
what God calls us to do. Now, in the book of Matthew, just some brief context for this book. Matthew is about King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God in human flesh, who came to his own people uh, who were sitting in darkness. And he came upon them and he shared the truth concerning their sinfulness and salvation in him. And we see that within the ministry of declaring the word of God, which he shared concerning their need for a savior, which was himself right in their midst, that he also affirmed those things with the miraculous. And within that, Israel had began to reject uh, the reality of what Christ was saying. Two and a half years have gone by at the point we're coming to today, where since Jesus began ministering, and within this time, the Jews had hardened their hearts. They had closed their eyes. They had stopped up their ears. They were unrepentant. They were unwilling. And Jesus would call them, as we'll see today and earlier, an evil and, uh, an evil and adulterous generation. Matthew then revealed that the leaders, the religious leaders, wanted to destroy the Lord Jesus, to kill him. And then Jesus withdrew from the multitudes and began as he withdrew from the multitudes, to focus on training his disciples. So with this in mind, coming to chapter 16, uh, we have another turning point where after this point, Jesus reveals from this point on, he focuses on the fact that he is going to go to Jerusalem, be delivered up. He's going to be crucified, suffer, be crucified, and then raised from the dead on the third day. And within this reality, we see the tremendous uh, declaration, even of Peter, who is blessed, who is blessed, he, he talks about Jesus as the Son of God, the only one, right? Who would men say that? Jesus, uh, Peter says, you're the Son of God. You, you, he knew who he was. But yet in the blink of an eye, uh, he began to think man's ways when Jesus had declared he had to go to the cross. Peter said, no way, basically. And God had to say, and flesh had to say to him, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block for me. You are not setting your man, mind on God's interest, but man's. And then Jesus revealed towards the end of chapter 16 what he expects of those who desire to follow him, to, to give up their lives, to take up the cross, to follow him, to follow him. And then he began to share that uh, they would not taste death as disciples until they saw him coming in his glory. And that's what the beginning of chapter 7 is about, as Jesus takes the three inner circle disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he is transfigured in front of them. They see him in his glory. And it's as they are walking back down from this tremendous, true experience with the Lord being glorified in their midst that we have what happens here today in our passage. As they come down from that mountaintop experience, we have the situation in which we're going to look at today. Again, Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 21. And let me start in verse 14. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. And he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, then they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And he says, Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, I think we're going to see two things today in how we can keep from uh, failing in what God calls us to do. First of all, we're going to see that we need to recognize that when we do fail, there are consequences. There are consequences. It gives unbelievers an opportunity to blaspheme God when we as believers fail in the things that God has called us to do. Notice our passage starts out uh, in verse 14. And when they came to the multitude. Now just for your, for your sake, put your finger also in Mark chapter 9. What Bob, we're going to be going back and forth between Mark 9 and Matthew. And I may mix those words up, but you'll know where I am as I, as I read it. So in Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, And when they came to the multitude. Again, the context is here is Jesus has taken his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the mountain. They have seen his glory, and he has told them not to reveal this to anyone until he has risen from the dead. And they are coming down from this mountaintop experience, and they have left the other disciples behind. And evidently, they have been ministering. But while Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John were gone, something happened. There was an event, a circumstance that happened, and they come into this circumstance. Notice in Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came back to the disciples, this is is speaking of they, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. Around who? Around the disciples, right? The ones that were remaining. And some scribes arguing with them. So there's an argument going on, okay? And immediately when the crowd saw him, that's Jesus, they were amazed and began running to, up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you, now at this point we'll see, he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Now I believe the Lord Jesus is not responding to the crowd at this point. He is talking to the disciples who were left behind from the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, what were you discussing with them? What was this argument you were having with the scribes? With the scribes. What is this argument? Now remember, the scribes, they were the religious leaders learned in the scriptures. They knew the word of God, but they didn't know the God of the word. And they had hatred for him, and they wanted to destroy him and trip him up at this point. And so Jesus asked his disciples, verse 16, What are you discussing with them? What are you discussing with them? So back in Matthew, notice back in Matthew chapter uh, 17, And when they came... To the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. So we got two things going on. We have the disciples arguing with the scribes, and we have this man who who runs up to the Lord at this point. The multitude is around also, and he runs up and, and says, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And is very ill. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. Verse, verse 16. And I brought him, notice this, to your disciples. And they could not cure him. Hmm, we're getting more information now. Now go back again to Mark chapter 9. Mark's a little wider in its, uh, in its, in its discussion here. Two different purposes for, for why the Spirit of God through Mark and Matthew brought forth this, this true story from different angles. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came back, 
they saw a large crowd around them, some scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, this is the disciples, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. That seems to be the issue here. The disciples are unable to cast out a demon from this boy. That seems to be what's going on. And they couldn't do it. And it seems like the scribes are arguing with them about this situation. They're probably mocking them like they did in other situations we see in Scripture. They couldn't do it. And now you might want to say, well, wait a second, how could they do that? Well, Jesus had given them the authority to do this, by the way. So there's something going on. Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons. Look back in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. It's very important that we see this. They actually had the authority to do what they did not accomplish, what they couldn't do at this point, and brought about a big argument with the scribes. Matthew 10, verse 1. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And the disciples did do that. They did cast out demons. Notice in Luke chapter 10. Turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be all throughout the Gospels here. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. This is when the 70 were sent out. We see that they cast out demons. They had authority to do it. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Notice he says it. And he, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and, and over, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's what we should be rejoicing over. Don't rejoice over those things God allows you to do that he is glorified in, but rejoice over the fact you're saved because of Jesus Christ. So clearly these disciples had authority over the spiritual spirit. They had authority over demons, and they couldn't cast them out. They couldn't cast out the demon. Look back in Matthew 17. We're going back and forth here. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. This man is coming to Jesus. He is falling on his knees. He is petitioning Jesus for mercy for his son. And he says even the word for my only son, my only begotten son, my only son. He has one son. And he says, for he is a lunatic, very ill. He often falls into the fire and into the water. He comes to the Lord. He says, Lord. Now that doesn't mean he realizes that Jesus is the Lord of lords because the term Lord, kurios, is a, is a, is a sign of authority. It, it spoke of one who was an authority. But it certainly could speak of the Lord Jesus and does. And so he says here, for he is a lunatic. The term lunatic was the one who, it spoke of one possibly who had epilepsy. 
or a mental disorder. It comes from the Greek word that meant moonstruck. And at this time, people thought that the moon had power in a sense. And when people were crazy, they were moonstruck in a sense. That's where we get lunar, lunatic, right? We see it. He's a lunatic. He's a lunatic. He is very ill, he says, for he often falls in the fire and often on water. Now, as we'll see in a moment, Matthew does not give all the details here because that's not the point of Matthew. You know, what the real issue here is we're going to see is the disciples' lack of faith. That's what we're going to see. So Matthew doesn't give all the details about the lunatic, but Mark does. Mark does. Look again back in Mark chapter 9, verse 17. Here we have some more details about this, this boy. And one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit. I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Mark 9.18. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Now this guy, he knows there's a demon. And he's saying, this is all the stuff this demon is doing in this boy. It dashes him to the ground. It makes him mute. And he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. He is speaking of demon possession. Now, we live in a society where we don't see that as much. We don't live in a pagan society. But you go in some pagan societies in different areas of the world, and there is outward demon possession. Now, you see it a little bit here and there, but his guy, Satan, is, is crafty. But here we see demon possession. Now, demons are fallen angels. They are spirit beings. They fell. They followed Satan. A third of the angels fell. We see that in Revelation chapter 12. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to get into the many passages we have in Matthew, but we can see very clearly that demons can inhabit non-believers. They can possess non-believers, and they have an influence over them. But as we're going to see, believers cannot be possessed by demons. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, we see nowhere in Scripture that you can be possessed. You can be influenced externally. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You can't be possessed as a believer. But demonic reality is there. In Matthew's chapter 8 and 9 and 12 and in other passages, we see that there are people possessed by demons. And remember the legion of demons uh, that one was possessed by in chapter 8 of Matthew. And we also see that those who are possessed are not in their right minds. Now, evidently, they were in their right minds at one time, but they've been playing with things that they shouldn't play with. They've been involved in satanic things, whatever it might be. Somehow they've opened a door. And not being believers, they are totally vulnerable. They're not in their right minds. They can be violent. They can be unpredictable in their actions. They can exhibit super strength. They also have physical ailments, as we see, like deafness and dumbness. Deafness and dumbness and blindness. Physical ailments. Now, that's not to say every physical ailment is demonic possession. We know that. We understand it. But there are some that is from that. So back in chapter 15, we have the Gentile woman who cried out in 15, 20, she said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. 
cruelly demon-possessed. The reality is, there is the possibility of possession by those who have rejected Christ, including children. Including children. Okay? Now, as we're going to see, Christ can and and will deliver one from that if who believes in him for salvation. For those of you with kids playing around with Christianity, those kids who are messing around and not, 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 uh, not trusting in Jesus Christ, not believing in Him for salvation, you're in a dangerous place. You think you're fine. But you're not eternally, and you may not even be temporally. The reality is demons can inhabit, and they do, and we see this here in Scripture. God shows it, that a child is possessed by a demon. Okay? And it's very terrible. You know, we see a lot of stuff. My wife's a special ed teacher. She sees a lot of stuff in schools that, that has some demonic stuff, it seems like. These kids are acting ways they shouldn't act. And the world has their definitions for them. But it makes you wonder in light of what you read in Scripture if there's some demonic activity. But here it's obviously out very clear. So come back to the book of Mark. Come back to the book of Mark, verse 17. And one in the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes into the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. You know, on a side note, in the world's pride and rejection of God, people do not want to recognize that maybe some mental illness, not all, could be demonically related. People don't want to recognize that, but we see that here in Scripture. We don't make those judgments. God knows. But we see here in Scripture. So here's the scene. James, Peter, John. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down from the mountain. There's a crowd, and these disciples, the ones that are remaining, are arguing with with, uh, the scribes. And apparently it's about the fact that they can't cast out this demon. In the midst of this, the dad now cries out to Jesus to have mercy on him because of what this demon is doing to his boy. And so with this in mind, we're going to see later on that they will ask Jesus, why did they fail? They actually failed. The disciples failed. They failed in what God had given them the authority to do. And I believe they were believing that God would have them do it. They had faith that what God had said would happen, but there was something wrong in the midst of this. And this happens to us. We believe the truth of God, and yet God does not fulfill that. And we wonder, what is happening in this? What's wrong? What's wrong? Remember, they should have been able to cast out demons. They were told in Matthew 10 again that they had authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out in every kind of disease. Now, just on a side note, nowhere in Scripture do we see the Lord Jesus uh, telling us to cast out demons. The reality is we don't run around casting out demons. There's, except for this, the, the end edition in the book of Mark, but anywhere else, there's no place where we are told to cast out demons. The reality is Jesus did and his disciples did and it was a miraculous evidence that he was the Son of God in their midst affirming the reality of what he was doing. But for us, the way we deal with demonic things is that someone turns to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and believes in him for salvation and he is delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. 
So back to our passage. These disciples had failed. God had said, you have authority to do this. And they failed. It didn't happen. And they're going to ask later on, why Why couldn't we do it, Lord Jesus? Why couldn't we do what you said we could do? And you may be asking in your life, why am I I'm doing what you want me to do, but it's not working out. It's not doing as you declared. Why? I believe that you're enabling me to do this. I believe that. Why? Why? Well, notice after being petitioned by a desperate dad, Jesus does rebuke the crowd and the dad and then cast out the demon back in, uh, in Mark, or actually Matthew, and uh, verse 14. And when they came to the multitude, a man kept him falling his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. By the way, a demon's trying to kill him, by the way. Fire fall in the fire, and that's, you know, Satan is a murderer, right? Okay, and he says here, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, notice his response. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus saying, how long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Now, there are different Bible teachers that think different things. Some would say that when he says, oh, unbelieving generation, he's talking to his disciples. I don't believe that's the case. They believe. He's always used this term to speak of that generation of Jews that had rejected him. Unbelieving and perverted generation. And he rebukes the crowd and the scribes. They are unbelieving and they are twisted in their thinking. They are perverted unbelieving and perverted. You see, Jesus had been doing the miraculous around them. He had been affirming the truth that he had been sharing with the miraculous, and they had seen it, and they had not repented. They had rejected it. But notice they're also wearing on him too. Two and a half years of unbelief. And notice what he says. How long shall I be with you? And he says here, how long shall I put up with you? You know, it's not a very nice statement from a human standpoint. You're around somebody, you say, how long should I put up with you? Think about that. How long should I put up with you? That means Jesus is clearly not enjoying their company. They are an evil and unbelieving generation. And maybe the Lord is saying to you, because you've rejected him, how long shall I put up with you? He is yearning, I believe here, to be in his glory. He just came down from the mountain. He was transfigured before them. And he's going to the cross. And he's going to be glorified. And he's going to be back where he came. Back to where he came. And then we have here. He says, how long shall I put up with you? Jesus is patient, unwilling for any to perish. But he, is, he, is, he will deal with your sin. And if you're willing to come to him, he'll forgive you. But he might come to a point as we see, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you? So with this in mind, notice he also approves the dad. Take a look at Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. And they brought, verse 20, the boy to him. And when he saw him, that's Jesus, when the, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling on the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. This is a terrible scene. 
This is a horrible scene. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. So evidently he's a young, young boy, but from childhood. Long time. And it often has thrown him into the fire and the water to destroy him. That means to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on him and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Here the Lord Jesus reproves this man's unbelief. He says, if you can, this is God in human flesh. He says, if you can do anything, if you can, Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. You know, brother and sister, we should be ashamed at times as we say the same thing about things that God has clearly relayed in his word. Clearly relayed in his word concerning promises that are clearly applicable to our lives. And we say, if you can in our hearts, would Jesus be saying back, if you can All things are possible to he who believes. And notice the response, and I love it from the father, Mark 9, 24. 24. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. It's the right response. I believe, but I'm struggling. Help me. It's the right thing. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Humble yourself before Jesus. Ask him to open your eyes to help your unbelief, and he will. He will. And notice what Jesus does at this point. And this is still in in Mark chapter 9. And when Jesus saw, verse 25, the crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy began so, and the boy began so, excuse me, and the boy began so, he, he much like a corpse, that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Matthew's point here is a little different than Mark's. Matthew minimizes what we read in Mark. Here we see the whole event of him casting him out, right, and the convulsions and all this stuff, right? In Matthew, he says, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out, and the boy was cured at once. Matthew's point is about faith, as we're going to see not about the situation with the demon. And on a side note, only Jesus can deliver you from Satan, by the way. And you say, oh, I don't have any demon stuff going on in my life. Well, if you are not saved like I wasn't, like everyone before Christ wasn't, you are in the domain of darkness. You are doing Satan's bidding. You are in his sphere. And you will find that you are controlled by your own desires to Satan's perverse delight. But God is gracious. God is gracious, and he grants repentance turn to second timothy chapter 2 verse 24 and the lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but kind to all able to teach patient when wrong with gentleness correcting those in opposition if perhaps god may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive to do his will. You see, before Christ, we were held captive to do his will. And what was his will? His will was our will. And it always led and led to sin and, and, and death and sorrow. You see all these actors who are so popular and got so much, they're, they're killing themselves. 
People who have money, whatever it is, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. You can have everything. You're just playing into the one who is a murderer and a liar. Turn to Acts chapter 26. It is only through Jesus that we are delivered. Only through Jesus that we are delivered from our sin and from the domain of darkness. Jesus is the only one who can deliver you. He is the only one. Acts chapter 26. This is the Apostle Paul before King Agrippa recounting his testimony when Jesus saved him. And when Jesus is saying, here, Paul, this is what you're Saul. Now, Paul, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. Acts chapter 26, verse 15. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to point you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You see, Jesus Christ delivers us, Colossians 1, from the domain of darkness and transfers us, into, or the Father, through faith in Christ, transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so back in our passage, we have this boy who has been tormented by the demonic, by a demon for, for since his childhood. Tormented. And Jesus, uh, as this father says, help me, I believe, help me in my unbelief. As he responds and he casts out the demon. So first of all, I think we need to recognize that when we do fail in what God has called us to do, when it's our fault, as we're going to see it was the disciples' fault, we'll see why in a minute, that it does give the world a chance to blaspheme. All that, all that stuff, the commotion, all the arguments, all, it gave the world a chance to blaspheme. Why couldn't you do it? Why couldn't you do what Jesus said you could do? You tell me that Jesus has set you free. Why are you abandoned to sin? What's going on? Right? It gives the world a chance to blaspheme in whatever way. But notice, we need to realize from this point, not only can it cause the world to blaspheme, but secondly, how we can do what, how we can not fail in what God wants us to do is that we recognize we need to have a dependent faith in the person of Jesus. Not just faith in what he said, but faith in him. Faith in him. Look at uh, back in Matthew, again back in our passage, Matthew 17. I'm going to read up to it again. And when they came to the multitude, a man came to him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy entered, and the boy was cured at once. And then verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, privately, and said, Why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do what you said we could do? Why couldn't we do what you gave us authority to do? Why did it not work? And notice his answer here. And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. Why couldn't we cast it out? Because of the littleness of your faith. The, the word littleness of your faith comes from a Greek word, agopisteon, 
And it means uh, a deficient or limited amount. A limited or deficient faith. A deficient faith. Now, you may have the New King James Bible here, and they have, there are sometimes there are some textual issues. They have a different word here, apistos, which means no faith. And I, and I actually don't think that's correct here, but their Bibles, whenever there's a textual issue, they are honest. They will always have a note. You look in there, it'll say, it'll have a note. It'll have a note, it does here. But the point is, I believe, I think the NASB translates it best because of the littleness of your faith. It isn't that they didn't have faith. They actually stepped out and believed they could cast it out, but it didn't work. They believed the truth of what God had declared to them that they could cast out demons or they wouldn't have stepped out, right? And they did. And they did. Now, we've seen this deficient faith before, haven't we? But we've seen it mostly in the context of, of difficulty, storms, where a storm comes and, and the disciples are all concerned and, and Jesus reproves them in the midst of the difficulty. It's different than that. But you might remember back in chapter 8, verse 26, when the storm came upon them and Jesus was sleeping, he said to them, Why are you so timid, you men of little faith? And you might remember the storm in chapter 14 where Jesus is walking on the water. He comes out there and he says, Oh, you of little faith to Peter. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Well, those situations, we had storms going on and difficulties, and we are tempted to not believe what Jesus says. But in this situation, they had a clear mandate from God in his word from him, and they couldn't do it. Why could they not do what God called them to do? Notice back in our our passage, he says, because of the littleness of your faith. And notice what he says, For truly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move here to there, and, move, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. And then you have the verse 21, But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You'll notice that's in italics in your Bible. And there's a note that says, Most manuscripts do not contain this verse. So we say, okay, well, I see that in this point. I'm going to look at another passage. Go to Mark chapter 9 again. What is this littleness of faith? What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Mark chapter 9, verse 28. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do it? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The implication is they didn't pray. The implication is they didn't pray. They believed, but they didn't pray. They believed, but they didn't pray. I think that's the problem with a lot of our situations as believers. We believe the truth of God. We know the truth of God, but we don't, in a practical basis, trust in Jesus as revealed by prayer. I'll tell you that right now. He says, because of the littleness of your faith, the littleness of your faith. And here the manifestation of little faith is not praying, not praying. You see, the reality is God would not allow them to do what he called them to do because they weren't depending on him. They weren't praying. And by the way, much of what God has called us to do, if you are not in dependent prayer, trusting the Lord, God is going to let that be frustrated. 
God has clearly revealed things in our in His Word. He says, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. The peace of God which surpasses comprehension will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Promise. Why isn't guarding my heart and mind in Christ Jesus? I believe it. Maybe you're not dependently praying. Maybe you're not trusting personally in Him. You believe the truth that He said, but do you believe Him? Whether it's homeschooling, whether it's your work, whatever it is, are you depending on the Lord as evidenced by prayer? A lot of people know the truth, they believe the truth, they say, yes, it's true, but God isn't functioning in their lives because they're not dependently praying. Prayer is communication with God. It shows our dependence on Him. And He says, this type of demon cannot come out without prayer, which shows they weren't praying. They weren't praying. That's why. You weren't praying. You had a little faith. You believed. You went, you, they, they obviously had faith. They stepped out and tried, didn't they? They believed, but they didn't pray. Let me ask you this. What's your prayer life like? What's your prayer life like? Do you pray in everything? Do you rely on the Lord? It's a personal relationship. It's trusting in Jesus. When that man said, I, I, I don't, I, I believe, I, but help me in my unbelief. He's talking to the Lord personally. Do you talk to the Lord personally? Dear Lord, help me in raising my kids. You've told me to do these things, and I'm stepping out in faith and doing this. Help me. Help me in this circumstance. Help me at my work. Help me in my job. Help me with everything. Help me to share your word so you'd be glorified. Help me in this conversation, Lord God. Help me in everything. I'm trusting you. I would say much of why we fail is because we're not relying on the Lord as evidenced by a personal relationship of prayer with him. You see, the reality is apart from Jesus and depending on him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. Turn to John chapter 15. And just maybe, just maybe, the reason why you're stepping out in faith in what God has told you to do and it's not, he's not answering, it's not happening, is because you're not praying. You're not praying. John 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father, the vine dresser, is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, speaking of salvation, because of the word which I have spoken to you, speaking to his disciples. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides or remains or rests in me. And I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And prayer is an evidence of dependence on the Lord, by the way. If you don't pray, if your life is, is inconsistent with prayer, it shows your, your, your life is inconsistent with dependence on the person of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. I'll read this for you. Not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves but our adequacy is from God. So if I recognize my adequacy is from him, I'm going to be talking to him. You see, if, if I can't do anything apart from him, I'm going to be talking to him. I'm going to be requesting his help. I'm going to be depending upon him. They believed that God could do it. They stepped out in faith to cast out the demon. God had gave them the authority to do so, very clearly. And when they tried to do it, it wouldn't work. 
It didn't happen. Because they did not depend on Him. Their faith was deficient. It was little as revealed by prayer. Lack of prayer. Again, believer, do you pray? Prayer is, gives, is it's a thermometer to your relationship with the Lord, to be honest with you. It's a thermometer. And see, when you've truly been humbled, you'll pray. When you're prideful, you don't pray. When you're self-sufficient, prideful, forgetful of Him, when you don't think about it, and we need God to remind us of His truth, to change our hearts that we would depend upon Him. Do you pray in how to raise your kids? Do you pray in how your work goes? Do you pray in how to serve? Do you trust Him in every area of life? Are you failing in an area that God is clearly willing to help you with biblically? Maybe you haven't prayed. Maybe you're not depending on Him. Maybe your faith is deficient. It's there, but it's deficient. It's little. It's little. Well, notice here, uh, back in chapter uh, 17, that Jesus further explains. He further explains about faith. Again, verse uh, 19 of chapter 17. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. And then later on, Mark, he says, Because this one only comes out by prayer. You didn't pray. And he says, For truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. So the disciples pull him aside privately. They ask him why they couldn't do it. He says, because of the littlest of their faith. And he begins an explanation. He says, for truly I said to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. That's a pretty amazing statement, by the way. Pretty amazing statement. But as I look at this, this doesn't seem to help me very much. It's a little confusing, Right? He has just reproved them for the littleness of their faith. And then he uses the example of a mustard seed, which is the littlest of seeds, even smaller than a grain of sand. So he's saying, you know, you're littlest of your faith, but if you had faith as small as this, doesn't make sense, does it? Seems like a contradiction. You have faith. You have small faith and you couldn't do it. But yet if you had incredibly small faith, then you could do it, right? Well, I think the solution is in the idea of what he means by this term mustard seed and how he's used it before with them. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 31. He presented to them, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than any of the other seeds, but when it is full grown... It is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Remember, it starts as the smallest, but it persists and endures and becomes the largest, you say. Brother and sister, this tiny seed of faith, persistent in the context of prayer, as we're going to see, is what God is looking for. Persistent faith in the context of prayer. Look at Luke chapter 18. Persistent faith in the context of prayer. You see, when I pray, I'm depending on the Lord. And sometimes it needs to persist and it will grow. Persist and grow. Luke chapter 18. 
Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray. How about that? Right? And not lose heart. Pray and not lose heart. Saying there was a certain, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet this widow bothers me. I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wears me out. Persistence, by the way. And the Lord said, here, well, here, <coughs> excuse me, the unrighteous judge, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect? who cry to him day and night and will not delay long over them. I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He told the parable that they would pray and persist in prayer. It's a relationship of dependence and persistence. Turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. I want to show you that this prayer is not simply prayer, Lord God, do this for me, like the parable. That, that's, that's not the point of the parable. The parable is she kept going to him. That's the point. And he got worn out. Mark chapter 11, we see that faith is not faith that he's going to do it, which we already have, but it's faith in him. That's what we're missing, by the way. Faith in Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. That's the object. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Oh, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be taken up and cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things which you pray and ask and believe that you have, and believe that you have received them and they shall be granted to you. That's a pretty amazing promise. We're going to have to look at the context there. The point is in prayer, it's about faith in God. Have faith in God, not faith in Him just simply doing those things. Yes, that's part of it. Faith in Him. We need to have faith in Him. Trusting him, believing what he said, but believing in him personally. And many of you, and, and myself at times, we believe the truth of God, but we don't believe the God of the truth. We don't trust in him as evidenced by prayer, personally. Now you say, I get that, but what about this moving of mountains thing? I've never seen that happen, right? He says, if you have faith in the mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here and there it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible. That's a pretty amazing statement, right? Now, this cannot possibly be speaking of literal mountains. And you say, why? Well, let me share the reasons why. First of all, never did Jesus ever move literal mountains. Never did his disciples ever move literal mountains. The term mover of mountains was an Hebrew idiom. When someone overcome, overcame great obstacles, they were called a mover of mountains. So someone who would overcome, they would say, he's a mover of mountains. It was a, it was a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech. He's not saying you can do anything, you, he'll do, that if you pray, he'll do anything you want. 
But he's saying in the context of trusting in him, if you persist with genuine prayer, even as small as a mustard seed, genuine prayer, you trust in him, you will overcome those things that he has promised you in his word. Nothing will be impossible. Nothing. You need to believe the truth of God and the God of the truth. And that's what's wrong in a lot of our relationships. A lot of our relationships. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So how can we keep from failing in what God calls us to do? God has called you to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He's called you to to love your wife and to love and respect your husband. He has called you to do your work heartily unto him and not unto men. He has called you to serve uh, in the context of the body of Christ, not by our own strength, but by his. He has called us to do these things. How can we do them and not fail? Well, first of all, we need to remember the great consequences of not trusting Jesus. It causes the world to speak badly of Christ. And secondly, we need to realize that underneath everything, although we may believe the truth of God, we need to believe the God of the truth. Have faith in God, and that will be evidenced by prayer. By prayer. Let me ask you, do you know the God of the truth? Do you know Christ? If you don't, you're in Satan's domain. You are in his domain. There you are, you, whether you understand it or not, you are being held captive to do his will. And repentance and faith will set you free. Jesus will set you free. We saw a demoniac today. We saw someone possessed. The extreme example of what Satan does to destroy people. Physically, we see. Don't play around. There's a spiritual world. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And then for those of us who are believers, we need to recognize not that we simply believe what God's word says. We do believe. We, not that we believe the principles and concepts. Yes, we do believe it. But underlying that, we need to trust personally in Jesus in every situation. And that is revealed by prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder. We are so flawed and we fail so often, Lord God. We, we believe, but yet help us in our unbelief. Lord, so often we, we believe what you've said, we believe your truth, but we don't believe you. Forgive us. Help us to trust you and rely on you. To be men and women of dependence and humility as exhibited by prayer. Walking with you, praying without ceasing, trusting in you in every way. Lord, I pray for anyone here who recognizes they've failed, they haven't been trusting you, Lord God. If they don't know you, I pray they would turn and repent and trust in your son Jesus who died for their sins. And Lord, for those of us who know you in areas where we have failed, may we confess, be forgiven, and step out in faith, persistent faith, trusting you as evidenced by a right relationship of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. As the